Hello and welcome to Off the Page, the podcast from International Literature Festival Dublin. This week, we're listening back to an event from the 2016 festival featuring science writer Marcus de Sautoy in conversation. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the International Literature Festival Dublin. I'm Martin Colfort, the programme director. Um, we opened the festival yesterday with a great range of events looking at poetry and novels. And this afternoon, we're shifting direction into the world of science. And it's a great pleasure to be welcoming Marcus de Sautoy to Dublin this afternoon. Marcus is a brilliant communicator about maths and science. And so too is our chair this afternoon, Avin Nihulawan. Marcus will give a presentation for around 20 minutes or so, then they'll be in conversation and very quickly I think they'll open it up uh, to, to you to put your questions to Marcus. Just to introduce Aveen briefly, she's a lecturer in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at University College Dublin. She completed her PhD in Maths Education at Trinity uh, as a science communicator. She's presented both TV and radio shows, um, the Science Squad on RTE, the Science and Comedy Quiz Show Eureka with Neil Della. Amir, and separately she has also presented getaways for BBC Northern Ireland and RTE. Following the event, Marcus will be signing copies of his new book, What We Cannot Know, over in the Gutter Bookshop. Um, and finally, a big thank you to our sponsors, Dublin City Council and Arts Council Ireland. I'm somebody who left maths and physics behind at the age of 16, so I've got a lot to learn over the next hour. And to enable us to do that, please join me in welcoming Avin Nihulawan, and Marcus de Sotoy. Thank you. Good, good afternoon, everybody. You're all very welcome to the Smock Alley Theatre and delighted to see such a full house because sometimes you wonder, um, you know, at a literature, a literature festival, how many people really want to hear about the science. But as I was explaining to Marcus backstage, I think Dublin um, is becoming a real hub for science and there is a real enthusiasm and a real hunger to hear more about it. And I'm very, very delighted that uh, we have Marcus with us today. So to give you um, an, an official introduction to him, um, he's the Simone Professor for the Public Understanding of Science and a Professor of Mathematics um, at the University of Oxford. Um, and obviously someone I have looked up to and admired for years because of all of his work in science communication um, across the board at science fairs, at public events um, and uh, on TV as well. You'll know him, I'm sure, from shows such as Dara Breen's School of Hard Sums. And also he fronted the, the story of mathematics on BBC, which was a really fantastic series about mathematics and really where it's come from. Um, he also has a group of math students who are junior research fellows postdoctoral research assistants. They are his marvellous mathematicians and they run workshops in schools and at Oxford University and at science fairs and public events as well to also um, enthuse people about mathematics. Uh, his mathematical research looks at understanding the world of symmetry and among his very many uh, academic accolades he's awarded the Berwick Prize by the London Mathematical Society for the publication of outstanding mathematical research. On the other side of his work he has um, won uh, the Michael Faraday Prize from the Royal Society of London for his excellence in communicating science to UK audiences and it's something that he is renowned for and does particularly well um, as an academic who can really speak to all audiences about his interests in mathematics and in science as well. Um, I've had the pleasure of reading the book already because I had it sent to me in advance and it was one of the most enjoyable reads of a science book because sometimes you take a science book because you're like I want to know more about it, it might be a bit of a chore and this one um, was just so interesting and a real page turner and I highly recommend that, that, that you maybe go and, and pick it up later on. I'm very much... <laughs> I'm really looking forward to hear, uh, hearing Marcus's presentation on it now for the next half an hour. And what we'll do after that is, as we have a, an hour to really play with, we'll take as many questions from the audience as we can until we have time to go now. Marcus will be getting um, a plane and he does want to sign some uh, books as well, so we will stay... Uh, quite uh, rigid on our timeline but please feel free to record any questions that you have throughout the presentation and we'll follow them up afterwards so please join me in welcoming Professor Marcus de Soto. Yeah, thank you. Uh, 
I always kind of uh, laugh when I hear this title that I got. I took over this professorship in Oxford, the Professor for the Public Understanding of Science, because I, I think that um, everyone kind of expects me to know the whole of science. <laughs> um, and uh, it certainly happened when I took over. I used to get these phone calls from journalists um, just uh, expecting me to know the answers to absolutely everything. I remember uh, one time a journalist phoned me, uh, it was just shortly after the Nobel Prize, medicine had been announced. Um, and and um, my biology is a bit shit. Um, and uh, uh, so he asked, yes, yeah, it's just been announced uh, for the discovery of telomeres. Um, uh, could you tell me what a telomere is? Now, I haven't got a clue what a telomere was. So I, I'm very embarrassed to admit that I actually went on, I was in front of my laptop and uh, pulled up Wikipedia and a telomere, uh, read quickly what it was, and then confidently told this journalist, um, yes, it's the piece at the end of a DNA which controls how long it will survive. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought this is kind of crazy, you know, that... Uh, there should be a professorship where somebody might sort of know it all. Um, but it actually got me thinking, um, you know, what about science in general? Could science at any point kind of know it all? Um, uh, you know, are there any questions that will always remain unanswered? And this is kind of the catalyst for my journey uh, that I've been on for the last three years, really writing this book, um, trying to understand um, whether there are any questions in on, in science that, by their very nature, we will never be able to answer. So uh, over the next uh, few minutes, I want to try and give you a guide to all the things that we cannot know, which, frankly, will be here until uh, next <laughs> festival if we went. But I, I want to give you kind of a little feel for, for the lay of the land of, of what it is that science may never get to answer. Um, I think that desire to know is incredibly basic in us. It's almost as basic as the desire to reproduce. And um, uh, Aristotle in Metaphysics opens uh, Metaphysics with the statement, every Everyone by nature desires to know. Um, I think it's part of our evolutionary survival that by knowing we can sort of uh, control the world around us. Um, but I think it's very dangerous at any point in history um, to uh, declare, we will never know this. Um, uh, because, you know, then a new Einstein comes along, completely throws our view of the world. And so I actually kept in mind on this journey um, a story, a story about um, a 19th century scientist called Auguste Comte, um, who in the middle of the 19th century um, declared, we shall never be able to study by any method the chemical composition of stars, um, which at the time seemed pretty, uh, uh, you know, safe bet, because how on earth are we ever going to visit a star to take a bit of it to analyse in the lab? But what Kant didn't realise is, of course, we don't need to visit the star, because the star is visiting us every night. So the lights, the photon of light uh, coming from the star is something... 20 years later, they were able to analyse it and determine exactly the sort of chemical composition of stars. So I've kept this in mind as a kind of a, uh, important story in trying to articulate the things in science that we shall never know. Um, uh, now, of course, the talk of known unknowns isn't unique to science. In fact, so there's a very uh, uh, famous uh, statement by Donald Rumsfeld where he was trying to explain about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and he declared, well, there are known knowns, there, there are the things that we know that we know. Uh, we also know there are known unknowns. Um, that is to say that uh, know that there are some things we do not know. Uh, but there are also unknown unknowns. The, the ones we don't know, we don't know. Um, um, and he got a lot of flack for this statement. In fact, he got awarded the uh, Foot in the Mouth um, uh, Award by the Plain English Speaking Society um, for this statement. But actually, I think it's a very um, uh, astute statement, a statement of different states of knowledge, things we know, we know. The, uh, the no unknown unknowns, you see, those are like the black swan events, the things that would completely change uh, our perspective on the world. And, and you can't say what those are going to be until they become uh, known, uh, known unknowns or known knowns. Um, so I'm going to try and articulate the known unknowns. Are there things that I can say now that we will never know, will remain always unknowable? Now, I think actually there's another category that um, uh, Donald Rumsfeld missed, actually, which are the unknown knowns. Um, which I think are really relevant to a politician because, uh, um, as Slavoj Žižek said, they're the kind of like Freudian things that you kind of repress and don't s pretend you don't know, but in fact you do know and they kind of come out. In, um, so I think there was sort of one state um, that he didn't get. So I'm going for the known unknowns. Are there any known unknowns that will remain unknowable? Now... <clears throat> One of the other catalysts for this journey that I've made over the last three years was actually the person I took over from in this job, because the previous holder of the Simone Professorship for the Public Understanding of Science was one Richard Dawkins. And, of course, Richard Dawkins uh, spent a lot of time not talking about science but talking about religion. 
Um, so I kind of braced myself when I took over this job for all the questions I was going to get, not about science and telomeres, but about my beliefs in God. So I had a strategy for this for all the journalists that were going to... I, I decided I was going to declare myself a deeply religious man. And my religion um, is the arsenal. Um, I go to my, my temple each weekend and I worship my idols. I sing songs every season. The beginning, I assert my faith that this will be the season that finally we will win the premiership. Um, uh, unfortunately, Leicester buggered that up this year. Um, but at least St. Tottenham made sure, made an appearance on the last day and we, we beat our rivals, Tottenham. So there is some, maybe a God up there after all. Um, um, but after a while, a lot of journalists wouldn't be sort of satisfied with this. And I remember uh, one uh, Sunday morning on BBC Northern Ireland Radio on a philosophy and religion programme. I'd been invited on. I said, I'm quite happy to talk about the philosophy of science, but can we avoid the religion? Uh, that quickly went out the window and I very quickly found myself having to talk about religion. And this interviewer kept on pushing me, you know, do you believe in God? What's your beliefs? Uh, and eventually I said, okay, look, as a mathematician, I spend a lot of time proving the existence or non-existence of things. Um, but I need a very clear definition of what it is that I'm trying to prove exists or doesn't exist. So please give me a very clear definition of what it is you're asking me about. And he said, Ar Marcus. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm, no, not, I shouldn't do an Irish, <laughs> Irish accent in Ireland. That's a really big mistake, so I won't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, um, he said, Marcus, the thing about God is it's the thing which transcends human understanding. And I thought, at the time, I thought, well, that's a real cop-out, because you, you've now just made it something I can't engage with. If it transcends human understanding, um, then how, how can we even talk about this thing? But actually, afterwards, I began to think, well, that's quite an interesting definition. What if you define God as the things that we cannot know? Maybe as a scientist, I can apply my scientific mind to defining what that is and exploring what it's like and what, what, is, what are the things that we cannot know. So that was partly my inspiration for this journey, was kind of answering that question. Well, okay, can we scientifically say what we cannot know? And um, a philosopher at my college in Oxford referred me to Herbert McCabe, who's a, a Marxist theologian in Oxford. He's dead now, but um, uh, um, I, I thought that was quite cool anyway, being a Marxist theologian. Um, but he uh, read uh, quite a lot of essays about God, and, and, and one he said this, and I thought it was a very interesting statement. To assert the existence of God is to claim that there is an unanswered question about the universe. Um, and actually, he goes on to say religion somehow committed iconoclasm by actually giving this very abstract idea too much properties that it doesn't have. Um, so I thought, let's go back to that as a definition and explore scientifically what are the things that we cannot know and what sort of nature do they have? Do they have an impact on us um, uh, and, and, and our, uh, on our world? Um, so I divided the book up into seven edges of knowledge, um, seven areas that I think might be things that we can never no. Um, so I'm going to give you a little just quick guided tour uh, uh, of these uh, seven areas. And each um, edge, I actually took an object with me uh, on my kind of journey to the edge of knowledge. So um, actually my first uh, edge and my first object um, was, um, uh, th that I took was this casino dice. Um, uh, this is a casino dice oops, let's uh, go back. Uh, this is a casino dice that I picked up uh, on the craps tables at Vegas. Um, I was trying to apply my mathematics. I mean, what is mathematics about? It's not about long division and sort of lots of decimal places and things. It's actually about trying to spot patterns and using those patterns to try and predict what's going to happen next. And it's been incredibly effective in being able to predict what's going to come next. So I thought maybe I can apply my mathematical uh, mind to this dice and work out what it's going to do next. Um, so I went to Vegas and I tried to apply my mathematics. Um, um, I lost a lot of money, but they let me keep the dice that, um, uh, that we were playing with. So, so I, I, it kind of pushed me to this first edge, which is, yeah, okay, if you have the equations uh, that control something, why can't we predict everything that's going to happen to them? So I guess my hero, uh, on my journey to try and use my mathematics to predict the future, to know what's going to happen next, can we know the future before it becomes the present, is Isaac Newton, who came up with the laws of motion, which came up with the mathematics of the calculus. And basically, um, after him, people began to realize the universe is kind of run as by mathematical equations. And if you know those, if you know the, uh, the initial state of the universe, and you know these equations, you should be able to predict everything about the universe, which is certainly, in some sense, uh, could be true. Now, if 
Newton is my hero, then this guy, Henri Poincaré, is my nemesis. Because at the beginning of the 20th century, this guy is the guy who discovered chaos theory. And chaos theory says, okay, sure, the universe might be controlled by equations, and if you know exactly the setup of those uh, the universe, you can run those equations to predict the future. The trouble is that if you have just even approximate knowledge, you nearly know everything, that's not good enough. Because even a small inaccuracy might cause a very big divergence in the outcome. Um, so I've got this, uh, you can just demonstrate this with just very simple uh, kind of systems. So it's not a complicated system. I've got here, um, this is a, 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 a pendulum and there are magnets on, on here and you let the pendulum swing and uh, I use this to make all my decisions uh, basically. So it says uh, yes, maybe, definitely, no way, try again, ask a friend. So um, uh, am I going to have time to go for a Guinness after uh, the talk? Let's set it going. Um, and I've got a little video. If you could um, press play on the video, um, you'll see, try and predict where that pendulum is going to go. It's got magnets. Um, it's a bit like a little asteroid going around some planets. But can you predict where it's going to go next? It's almost impossible until it finally settles on something. So it settles on the bottom one. So my Oh, there's no way am I going for a Guinness. Oh, dear. dear oh, that's a blow. Never mind. Um, OK, so I, I, the thing is that this system, although very simple, we have the equations, very simple equations, but it's so sensitive to a small change in where you start the pendulum off. So here are three models I did where I started the pendulum off, and I just changed the decimal place of one of the coordinates, like six decimal place. Uh, in one experiment, it went to the blue magnet, second one to the red magnet, third one to the yellow magnet. It was just so sensitive to small changes. And this is a picture which actually helps you to predict where that pendulum is going to end up. Now, there are some regions which are very predictable. And the thing is, it's important to know. There are some times you, when you can know you can know. If I'm near the yellow magnet, so, so the idea of the picture is, um, if you start the pendulum off over a yellow uh, colour, it's going to end up at the yellow pendulum. If you start it over a red colour, it ends up at the red pendulum. So if you're near the yellow pendulum uh, magnet, then sure enough, it's going to just wobble a bit and end up on the yellow magnet. But there are some other predictable regions. So here, you see, there's a good big yellow blob there. If you start there, it's going to swing back and forward and then eventually end up at the yellow magnet. But I started my pendulum off in the top left-hand corner, which is an area which is actually an example of something called a fractal. So a fractal has infinite complexity. It never simplifies. The more you zoom in on it, it doesn't suddenly go just yellow. It goes yellow, red, yellow, red, blue, red. And so it means that if I just make a small change, I can go from one color to the other. Um, uh, and you almost, you can't, this is an area where you know that you almost cannot know. Even approximate, very detailed approximate knowledge doesn't give you any knowledge at all. A precise knowledge will, but we can never know something precisely. Um, uh, now, I actually took as well on my journey, as well as a thing, I took a person with me, a person who spent their life at the edge of this particular area of knowledge. And I took with me on this journey, um, actually, uh, Robert May. He's Lord May now. He's, he sits in the House of Lords in England. And he's somebody who demonstrated how much chaos theory is just all over the place, particularly in biology. So he did a lot about chaos and biology. But he's now working in economics and he's working with the, uh, the Bank of England and he said, you know, in the House of Laws he tried to impress on them the following, not only in research but in the everyday world of politics and economics, we would be better off if more people realised that simple systems do not necessarily possess simple dynamic properties. So it's very important for a politician to know, you know, when can we know what's going to happen next and we can make plans or when can we not know? That's equally important, you know. Uh, um, so I asked him how he was getting on, was persuading the politicians that they needed to learn a bit of chaos theory. And he said, Marcus, they're mostly interested in their egos here in the House of Lords. So, um, but what about my dice? Well, you know, uh, perhaps we can analyse this dice in the same way as I did my pendulum. So instead of three colours for the uh, different magnets, I've got six colours for the different faces. And it turns out, actually, my dice is more predictable than I thought. I thought it would be chaotic. But actually, um, if I take this carpet here, it's quite soft, um, and it, uh, it will lose a lot of energy energy when I throw this dice on the carpet. So actually, when it is losing energy when it hits the, the, um, the table, it's controlled by a picture like the one in the top left-hand corner, where actually there are very big predictable regions and just threshold moments when you tip over into, onto landing on another side. Um, so actually, here's a tip if you're ever going to Vegas. Look at the bottom 
of the dice when it's released from the hand, because it's more than likely to end up um, uh, hitting the bottom. There you are. It was a four on the bottom, and it landed a four just now. So that's very useful. You know, if you buy my book, you might make a lot of money in Vegas. Um, uh, but it's also important to know that if I'm throwing it on the glass table, where actually it won't lose a lot of energy as it falls, this is more controlled by this picture, which is a fractal picture, which says even a small change will tip it from one side to the other. So um, let's, I'm going to put the four on there again. Oh, God, a four. Wow. I think this... Maybe that's why I lost. God, the thing's biased. Um, okay, so, so, uh, so that was... Um, uh, the first edge was looking at the behaviour of the future. Um, now, actually, Newton and Poincaré both said, well, if you know a system completely, then you should be able to work out what it's going to do next. The trouble is we don't know it completely. But actually, uh, physics at the beginning of the 20th century even questioned that. So the second edge actually asks about the ideas of quantum physics. And so my object I took on this journey um, was a little pot of uranium um, that I bought on the Internet. Amazing what you can buy on the internet. So, um, and this little pot of uranium, um, I, I had to smuggle it in on British Airways. I, don't, I hope I can get it home. Um, uh, but uh, it says on the side how many bits of radiation it's going to spit out per minute. So it's 984 bits of radiation per minute. But what it can't tell me is exactly when that bit of radiation is going to be spat out. Um, uh, that, that's something which seems to be just controlled by a completely random process. Um, uh, I'm not the only one who's bought this stuff on the internet, and some people really loved this stuff. Um, here's one person writing about customer review. So glad I don't have to buy this from Libyans in parking lots at the Mall anymore. Um, uh, but actually, at its heart, quantum physics says that even if you know a system completely, you will never know when that's going to spit out a bit of radiation. And this is due to something called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Here's Heisenberg, and it's a very precise mathematical formula actually articulating what you cannot know. If you know very precisely one thing, you actually lose knowledge about another. So this is a guy I really hate in my journey to try and predict uh, what things... But is that genuinely going to be like that? Um, Einstein certainly didn't believe that. He believed that this quantum physics surely isn't the final answer. He wrote, quantum mechanics is very impressive, and it certainly is. It's the most well-tested theory in physics. But an inner voice tells me that it is not yet the real thing. The theory produces a good deal, but hardly brings us closer to the secret of the old one. I am at all events convinced that he does not play dice. So maybe we're on our way to discovering a new theory that might help us to say when this thing is going to spit out radiation, but the current theory says that this is something that we genuinely can never know. Um, so that was uh, the journey towards the edge of quantum physics. Um, so I'm going to quickly take you through a few of the others. Um, uh, what about if I dig inside my uranium? What's it made out of? Well, we know that uh, well, the ancient Greeks used to think it was made out of earth, wind, fire, and water. But we then realized, no, there's kind of these atoms. Um, and of course, uranium is one of these atoms. But uranium isn't an indivisible thing. We can break uranium apart um, into these electrons and protons and neutrons. And at one point, we thought that was it. We thought we got down to the basic building blocks. But then we divided that, and it seemed to come apart again. So the, the protons and neutrons divided up and became quarks. So now we have these fundamental particles, and we think we're at the bottom layer. But how can we ever know that you know, the next generation is going to find another story sitting in underneath that? I mean, maybe it's turtles all the way down. And certainly <laughs> there is. You know, if you dig really deep inside there, they, um, some physicists say, no, this thing is actually made up of little strings vibrating uh, of a length, something called the Planck length, which is like uh, 30 decimal places before you sort of hit the first uh, um, non-zero number in that. So this, th and they believe that might be fundamental. But can we ever know that we've got to the basic building blocks. Why, why can't there always be another layer? So that was one of the edges. I dug deep down inside matter to see whether we could ever know what it was, what it was made of. Uh, then I reversed my direction and looked out into outer space. Can we ever tell whether um, space is finite or is it going to go on forever? Uh, and our conception of space has changed over each generation. Um, you know, at one point we thought the Earth was the center of it all and there was kind of a ball around us with stars on it. But then we realized, no, 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 we're not at the center of it at all. There's the sun, and we're going around the sun, and there are these other planets, the solar system. But then we panned out again and realized, oh, that's not all there is either, because uh, actually we're just part of uh, um, some Milky Way, this galaxy, and we're not even at the center of that. So, and then we discovered there are even more um, galaxies. So, so uh, our, our conception of where we are and the size of where we are, could we ever know that we kind of hit um, the final picture? Could we ever know that the universe goes on forever? Um, well, 
actually, that may be an unknowable, because from the Big Bang, uh, Einstein proved that information travels at the speed of light, so there's only a finite amount of space that we can actually ever see. It's expanding, but actually the space inside it seems to be accelerating in its expansion. So, in fact, we're actually seeing less and less of space as time goes on. Um, so there is a kind of bubble around us, and we may not be able ever to know what it is that's outside of that bubble, whether it goes infinitely or whether it might be joined up in some finite way. In fact, we now think we might have multiverses, and how could we ever know that with another universe with another sort of physics is out there? Could we ever know that sort of thing. So um, that was uh, going out into outer space certainly seemed to throw up some potential unknowables. Um, so uh, what about uh, time? Space and time are very related. Um, time is something that has always been mysterious to us. St. Augustine wrote, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I wish to explain it to one that asketh, I know not. Um, so the idea of time, understanding what that is exactly. We have this idea of a beginning of time now. But can we talk about you know, the Big Bang? Seems to be time was created in the Big Bang. But is there anything before the Big Bang? Is that a question we can ever ask or answer? Does it even make sense? It turns out that time actually might have an end as well. It's going to run out for all of us, which is kind of frightening. But what happens after that? Um, so time as well threw up a lot of mysteries. Um, uh, so we've got two more to go, and, and then we'll, uh, I'll come and sit down. Uh, 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 the other one, okay, I'll just, this is about the hard problem of consciousness. All I'm going to say is Wittgenstein and Beatles. Um, uh, so about that. And the final one is actually from mathematics, because it turns out mathematics is some place where you actually can prove that there are things that you cannot know. Um, so actually my object on this one was, uh, I, I made these math mathematical crackers for my family last Christmas. Um, uh, I thought they were great, but they thought they were really pathetic. Um, uh, they each had a joke in it, a mathematical joke. Um, this is uh, my favorite one. Uh, so what you need to know to understand this joke, you should never have to explain a joke, I know, but uh, Benoit <laughs> B. Mandelbrot is the guy who invented fractals, discovered fractals, so things with infinite complexity. Okay? Uh, so what does the B in Benoit B. Mandelbrot stand for? Benoit B. Mandelbrot. Oh, you're laughing. That's good. That's a good sign. Excellent. Great. Um, but they also had little mathematical paradoxes in there. So I put um, yes, I had a little Merbius strip. Um, but also had, I also had, I love these kind of self-referential statements, which just you can't make sense. This statement is false. Well, if it's false, it means it's true, which means if it's true, and you go around in a little circle, and you, there's no way you can give truth values to this. But the amazing thing, this was used by a mathematician at the beginning of the 20th century, Kurt Gödel, and he changed it a little bit. Uh, you know, a statement in, in, in natural language doesn't necessarily have uh, a truth value, but a statement about mathematics should either be true or false. Um, so he actually made this statement. This statement is unprovable. He made that using something called the Gödel coding into a piece of mathematics, which then was either true or false. Um, if this is true, um, then uh, so if this is false, it means that it's provable, but provable things are true. So it can't be false, in which case it must be true. Um, and if it's true, that, that means there is a statement which is unprovable. And this is what Gödel showed. He showed that within mathematics, we can prove that within any system, there will always be things that are true that we cannot prove within that system that they're true. Um, so, uh, so that's a very quick guide to the seven edges of knowledge that I discovered. Um, and uh, if, you, if, this is, if you want um, the Baedeker to the edges of knowledge, then uh, I recommend you buy this after the talk. Um, anyway, so uh, thank you very much. We'll have a conversation now. Thank you very much, Marcus. As I said now, we'll open uh, the floor to questions, but I think the first relevant question is, is there a business in Christmas crackers with maths jokes? <laughs> uh, my family really didn't think uh, <laughs> there was. I mean, uh, uh, but, uh, but I, I think there's a, you know, there's, there's a nerdy crowd out yeah. there. That's sort of niche, but um, yeah, yeah. I've Do you have a favourite mathematical joke? Uh, yes, oh God, but it's, I'm really bad. It's at dirty. Jokes. Oh it's no, not, okay, so we really. can't have it. Sorry. But yeah. it's, uh, it's the function party, and they're all at a, uh, at a party. So f of x is there, g of x, you know, 2 to the x, everybody's there, and e to the x is on his own in a corner. And 2 to the x, she's a nice, she's a nice person, um, she goes over and, and just says, e to the x, come on, it's a fun party to come over, talk to somebody, integrate yourself. And he goes, I try, but it's always the same. <laughs> so that's my favourite nerdy there are, They're laughing, that's really good, you know. Uh, there are some very We've got the nerdy crowd. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, before I ask for, for, for questions, uh, the, the one thing that really struck me about reading this book, and which I really loved, 
um, was the human element to all of it because it was reading the things that I actually, I've done and I've studied in college, but it was the first time where I went, oh my God, he was the first person to actually think that and then prove it. That must have been amazing. And it was that wonder through the human story um, that I just absolutely fell in love with. Do you think we're missing that from our general kind of conversations and our learning about science and maths? Yeah, I think it's, it's one of the really important things. You know, why are we all at a literature festival? Because we love storytelling. And actually, that's what science... Uh, science grows out of, actually, the stories. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, when you have something which is unknowable, often storytelling and the humanities might try and fill that. But often those are the catalyst for an idea uh, that science can then show, actually, no, this is not just um, a story. So mm -hmm. I think in all the work that I do, um, the idea of the fact that it's a human pursuit... Mathematics, especially, uh, you know, science. I think people understand that. Well, that's the world around us, so it's important to understand that. But mathematics is very much a human uh, pursuit, and it's about. We don't. We're not just articulating every true statement about numbers. Mm -hmm. Actually, we're making choices about journeys which kind of surprise us and connect two things which don't seem to have anything to do with each other. So, so I think that's a very important part of this. And actually, there's another human angle to this, which is. Um, I really talk about my own issues about trying to understand some of these areas, which are way outside of my area of expertise. Um, and I think that's important, that scientists uh, admit their own uh, in areas that they don't know as well. And I think just generally, politically, it's, it's important that we don't give the impression that we know it all. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sometimes unnerving for a society because they want a bit of certainty. You know, it, it is... Uh, uh, this going to happen if we do this. And, and I think it's important that scientists articulate when we can know something, like we're in a region which is predictable, but also to say, look, now actually we can't know, mm -hmm. um, and, and that you need to be uh, prepared to admit that. And then we need a scientifically literate society that can say, OK, well, tell me how much you do know, and I'll make a decision on what I should do about that. Then. Yeah, well, this is why I think, um, the, you know, Oxford were very far-sighted in creating this professorship. Um, uh, the professorship I've got uh, was created in 1995 for Richard Dawkins. Um, but I think Oxford recognised that, um, you know, it's a we live in a scientific uh, age where science is impacting on all of our lives. Um, but science for many, especially around, you know, before the turn of the cen uh, this century, um, was an alien place. It was like a, a, a foreign country. Um, and so I often talk about my professorship a bit like being an ambassador for the world of science. Um, it's, a, it's a big country that is going to have a big impact on the rest of society. And it's important that we create bridges mm -hmm. so you understand what it is that's about to, to hit us and whether you want you want uh, to have stem cell research. Well, unless you understand what a stem cell is, how can you even engage in that mm -hmm. debate? So, so I think it's, it's an important role, uh, actually not just for me, but all scientists, to, to step up to the plate and engage with society uh, about these issues um, and, and to help society to come to informed decisions. And is that something that you think we should be doing and incorporating as part of our undergraduate science, as part of our post-primary, as part of our primary, the, the communication element of it? Or where do we start with it? Do we start with the academics and, and acknowledge them for the work that they're doing in outreach? Well, I, I think, um, actually, you can go through all of these levels. The important thing for me is to remember is that, as a scientist, being a scientist is about two things. It's about discovery, but it's also about communication. And so that idea, the thing that you've discovered, doesn't come alive until that first moment when you tell somebody else about mm -hmm. it. You know, I, that exciting moment when I've discovered a new piece of mathematics and I then go and talk. I have a, a colleague in Germany. Unfortunately, um, uh, he, he died just recently, but, but he was the sort of person that I would be the first person to tell. Um, but then I want to tell more people. I would tell my seminar and tell my journals. But then I began to think, well, actually, the more people that know about this, the, the more that um, this idea lives. Um, so... This is part of my mission. These books are part of my mission about being a scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, it sort of feeds back because there's an interesting uh, um, guy that I talk about actually in the Music of the Primes book a lot, um, David Hilbert. Um, oh, yes. uh, he's a mathematician at the beginning of the 20th century who um, actually articulated 23 uh, unsolved mathematical problems that he believed were, should be the maths problems Goals. for the next generation. Yeah. Um, and in his speech he gave at the International Congress in Paris, he said, um, you cannot truly say to, that you can understand something until you can explain it to the man or the woman in the street. 
And I think that was a really good... You know, This first book, The Music of the Primes, is about our greatest unsolved problem called the Riemann hypothesis. Um, and I realised, actually, when I embarked on that, I didn't really know why it was so important or how to tell anybody about it. And my mathematics benefited from telling the story. Um, so I think that, you know, it isn't just a one-way thing. Scientists mm-hmm. who actually engage in this, their science is enriched and they find there are new questions because of their interaction with people who might ask something that they've never thought of. So, so I think it's a really important part of being a scientist that um, should be sort of encouraged more, and is being, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I still think we've got a long way to go. I think that's a really nice point, to have that dialogue between people who maybe aren't researching scientists, science and those that are, and actually melding the ideas, because a lot of good ideas come from those collaborations I that do a lot usual. of Yeah, I do a lot of work um, actually with creative artists um, uh, who are very often interested in sort of mathematical structures, either composers, or I've been working with a theatre company, um, Complicite, in London. Uh, doing, we did a show about mathematics, and they've just one, done one about consciousness, actually, um, called The Encounter, which I hope will come to Ireland at Hopefully. some stage. Um, uh, but, uh, but what I often find is these... You know, we have this thing called sci art collaborations, and, and often they're looked down a bit on because uh, they think it, most people just think it's the artist plundering the scientific cab- scientist cabinet of wonders for some interesting bit of you know, quantum physics. I'm going to make a play about quantum physics. Um, but actually, I found that my interaction with these artists, that very often, although they won't be able to solve the Riemann hypothesis, that's too much, but they might ask a new question which I hadn't thought of, which might spark a new journey. Um, and I think. Um, I don't know whether you have any, people have seen this. Um, I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but um, there's an amazing psychological experiment um, uh, where, which I, I took part in, where you get asked to watch this video of two basketball teams um, throwing a ball around. One is dressed in black and one's dressed in white. And um, the, the psychologist asks you, um, count how many times the black team passes the ball between them. Okay. And then they sell you this kind of red herring. Uh, so the, the guy who did it for us said, um, uh, weirdly, men and women count this differently. You think, well, that's kind of crazy. So you concentrate really hard, and you go one, two, three. So, and we, and so at the end, he says, so how many people got 17? And quite a lot of us put up our hand. How many, 18? A few put up their hands. It was a bit confused. And then he said, how many people saw the monkey walk <laughs> across the screen, uh, the man in the monkey suit, bang his chest, and then walk off? And we're all like, what? Yeah. And two people put up their hands, because they hadn't really concentrated on the counting. And they'd seen this guy in the monkey suit walk across. Now, I think that was a really good metaphor for sometimes how we get as scientists. We get very fixated on a particular way of looking at the world. And sometimes you need just something to, to disrupt and make you see the guy in the monkey suit. <laughs> Maybe that's a good place to stop and bring in the, uh, the guy in the monkey suit. The no, uh, <laughs> didn't you see him? Oh, you were concentrating on us, and he was just there. <laughs> if we had time for a point, I think that we could continue the, these conversations forever. But I don't want to uh, to take over all of Marcus's time. So, would anyone from the audience like to to ask a question? Oh, we have one here in the second row, and we have another one in the back. So, I'll take this lady first. Or sorry, it's, it's, it's a gentleman. Sorry, the yeah, lights, we've got the very bright lights. My, my, yeah. The lights are bad. Yeah. My apologies. <laughs> How, how do you approach a problem that you can't solve? Ah, that's very good. You see, um, in a way, the, the things I don't know are, of course, the lifeblood of what I do. Um, they're really important because uh, the things I know, they're kind of nice to tell other people, but actually they're the past, and the future are all of these things you cannot know. So, um, But I want to at some point, to know them. So how do you approach? I mean, it's, it's one of the big psychological problems that I have with my PhD students, because up to the time they've been doing their, you know, they've done their finals, their undergraduate, they know that the questions that we've been asking them to solve um, have answers. And they know that probably you can do it in half an hour, maybe, if it's an exam question or an hour. Um, and then suddenly they reach research, and I'm giving them questions I don't know how to answer, Uh, and uh, you can see a lot of them going through a very deep psychological crisis in coping. How do you cope with going into the unknown? Um, And I think one of it, one of the things is playfulness. I think you just have to play. You have to be, uh, as Beckett said, uh, you know, uh, fail, fail again, fail better. Um, It's very important just to be ready to fail um, and and to play and to try things out. So that's what I, I, I spend a lot of my time failing. 
um, and, and that's uh, failure, uh, but we never articulate the failure. I think it's Im actually mm. important sometimes to, to tell all the failures you've had because they're quite insightful about how you got to the, to the, to the solution. Um, so I, I, think that's, I think confidence as well. I, I, I had this kind of arrogant belief that I should be able to answer anything, uh, which is partly what this book is about because I, sort of, I turned 50 last year and I'm beginning to realize, shit, I'm not going to be able to answer all of these things. And, uh, um, but I think that, that was quite important. Uh, uh, one of my favorite operas is The Ring Cycle. Um, and in Siegfried, uh, Siegfried is this young knight um, who goes and slays the dragon. Um, why, why is he able to slay the dragon? Because he does not know fear. And I think that's one of the advantages of uh, youth mm. is that you can go and say, the Riemann hypothesis is just about prime numbers and spotting how they're... I can do that. And I think that's a good attitude to go into trying to solve the unknown is not to get too frightened by it. Um, I'll come to this gentleman in a second, but I think that this is a really good question to maybe follow up on because often we're taught when we're learning mathematics, especially at a young age, that if you make a mistake, that's a bad thing and you're not good at mathematics. Whereas mathematicians build their research on making the mistakes, going down the wrong avenue, coming back, going down a different avenue and realizing, actually, there's a, there's a way off here that I might be able to get to where I want to go at the end of it. And mistakes are part of finding out more and learning. But I don't think that we necessarily focus on that in a good way when we're teaching maths. No, I think there's, absolutely, there is too much emphasis on, and even at research level, you know, that uh, it's a... It, there's all, sometimes almost a horrible competitive feel to mm -hmm. mathematics, especially, uh, and science as well, because we all want our name on that theorem. You know, Andrew Wiles hid for seven years, not telling anybody yes. about what he was doing, because he wanted to be the one who sold oh. Fermat's last theorem. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I think, yeah, it's it's uh, you you want ultimately people to arrive at their destination, but um, uh, but I think you can learn a lot through uh, understanding failure. And uh, but but there's so much psychology involved in mathematics and mm -hmm. that's often missed I think in education that um, dealing with the psychology of, of somebody who is failing and how to, to build up their confidence to, to go forward is Im mm. really important. Thank you. So we'll take this question at the back here. Hey Marcus, uh, so uh, I really appreciate you're very open about uh, the uh, being open about the reasoning uh, you just mentioned uh, Wiley, uh, uh, sorry Wiles and uh, the, uh, we have the, in software development, we have the open source. Uh, you're advocating probably open reasoning. Uh, yes. So to let others get into the inside of how problems are envisioned and resolved. So keep doing that. That's great. And the question is, uh, what's the, or what are the areas that are most promising from a mathematical uh, research perspective in Nowadays. Are you in a, are you right? Yeah, good. You, like, you want a few tips? Space exploration? Is it? Uh, oh, I see. The, yeah. The genome? Is it the uh, self-driving vehicles? Uh, moving fleets of vehicles? Trying to push the boundaries of uh, whether P equals EMP? Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, uh, th that's. Um, it's it's always an interesting. Uh, you know, trying to predict sort of what where is going to be the next breakthrough or something you know what what is the, you know which door should you be pushing on is always quite difficult um uh, certainly with mathematical problems i mean i i I just didn't think I was ever going to be alive to see Fermat's last theorem proved. Mm. It was just sort of one of those things that... And the Poincaré conjecture as well, that was a big surprise that that got solved. Um, so my, my third book is actually it's called The Number Mysteries, and it's about uh, these great unsolved problems that actually have a million-dollar prize attached to them from the Clay Institute, one being P versus NP. Um, and um, I, I think... You know, the, the primes, for example, you know, there's so much attention on the primes, yet it still seems to remain uh, elusive. Will, will that one go? Uh, will I have to write another version of this book <laughs> at some point? You know, I'm waiting for that to happen, but I have no kind of feeling for um, uh, whether... Uh, it, I sort of feel we're one big idea away, and where that idea is going to come from, I don't know. But I think one of the... For me, one of the interesting areas at the moment... Um, uh, is machine learning. Mm. Um, I'm on a committee at the Royal Society um, to uh, try and look at the impact in the future on society of machine learning. So machine learning is basically, uh, you know, uh, we program computers. Uh, that's partly what the consciousness chapter about is about. So the object I take on that journey is actually um, uh, a, a little app that I downloaded on my phone, which is trying to convince me it's human. Um, and it basically is, tr I train it by interacting with it. So it gets better and better at being human. Um, uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, 
the machine learning is the ability to program something such that actually its interaction with the world, it reprograms itself, reweights itself, so it's better the next time. And I think this is, so people might have heard of AlphaGo that um, uh, a few um, weeks ago, months ago, um, beat the best uh, Korean oh, yes. uh, we have at the game, this Chinese game of Go, the black and white territory game. Uh, and this was always regarded as something that um, uh, would be beyond a computer because it required... Um, pattern spotting, it required a kind of a, a, an intuition about the shape of the thing. And we, you know, we've had thousands and thousands of years of evolution with our brain and our eyes to be able to spot patterns. We're really good at that. It's why we're very good mathematicians as well. Um, it's why I think most of us are actually mathematical at heart, even though you may say you're not, that we're good at pattern searching. But this thing had actually learned in a very similar way to a human had done by interacting and reweighting itself. And I think that was, for me, was quite a shock because I always used the game of Go as an example of, um, you know, computers won't be able to prove mathematical theorems. Mm -hmm. We can use them in kind of on the way, and certainly they have been used, but to actually come up with a new mathematical theorem that nobody else has uh, kind of conceived of, not just being a bit in, uh, you know, checking a lot of cases. But I'm beginning to wonder, you know, are we on the verge of the creative nature of... Uh, of AI because of machine learning, and what impact will that have on, on society? And I, I think that, that's a really interesting um, area to because it, it, it actually it taps into a lot of different things: the power of mathematical programming, um, the, the kind of biological issues, um, uh, and, but also you know what else will it be able to do that that we're missing? Mm -hmm. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've read Isaac Asimov, yes, uh, but my, yeah. my dad used to have these books lying around in sci-fi and one of his stories, one of his short stories is all about the AI and it's progressed a couple of centuries on and so much so that people don't actually do anything anymore because the machines have learned how to do everything and this man discovers how to multiply in his office in the back and he's just like, I've discovered something new uh, because the, the machines have gone so far on that humans just like ah we don't need to do anything anymore yeah, isn't that happening now in school you know oh my god, <laughs> oh my god i can do this without the calculator <laughs> Perhaps but i think actually I, I talk uh, one of the um kind of themes that comes up a lot in this book um uh, one of them is about working within systems and the fact that you by working within a system it's very difficult to to work out what's happening, and you very often have to go outside mm -hmm. it. So that's certainly true with Girdle, um, that, you know, within a system you can't, there are things that are true you can't prove, but by going outside the system you can actually prove that that thing is true, but then you're in another system. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, I think, uh, you know, that's the issue with quantum physics again, and the, the brain. Um, but the other one is singularities. And singularities are, by their nature, things in mathematics where the equations somehow break down and we cannot know, we cannot make, let the equations go the other side. So a black hole is an example of a singularity. So, for example, if time, if I throw my, that wristwatch is my, so this wristwatch is what I use as my object for time, um, and I sort of explore what happens when I throw it down a black hole, and it just, time stops, it, it, it kind of runs out of the black hole. So mm -hmm. these singularities are really important points at which we cannot predict. Now, there's one, which is the technological singularity, the singularity movement, talking about the moment when AI will, will actually, their intelligence will exceed ours. And being able to, there seems to be no way to predict what impact that might have. And so there's this thing called the singularity movement, which says we won't know what, what will happen at that point. So everyone can sleep easy tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's only a few decades away, actually. Do we have any more questions from the audience? We've got one here um, at, the, at the back, if we can, and we've another here at the back as, as well. So if we can get uh, microphones. Um, and I'll just go to this gentleman first, since you have the microphone first. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. And thank you for a very nice talk. One very small question. Did this guy over here referred to the use of PNP and the, the stuff you mentioned, the Clay Institute, you mentioned various other bits and pieces like that. Recently, I've been reading a lot about uh, the Polymath Project, and I've been reading about the other stuff, like Perlman, which is, again, just completely Russian rigor and massive exposure of, of data by the individual themselves. And there always seems to be, just a, to me anyway, a little bit of something missing, which is, do kids need philosophy before they even touch any of this stuff? That's... Well, that's question. a very interesting... I mean, yeah. uh, yes, I, I meant to actually touch on the Polymath, um, which is a very interesting example. Uh, mathematics is... Dumb, is a very solitary pursuit 
and is because of this slightly competitive nature. And actually, Timothy Gowers in Cambridge, who was he won a Fields Medal, which is our Nobel Prize. He said actually we should be sharing our knowledge much better. We'll probably make much more progress if we have a more collaborative approach. And he was actually hoping to do a kind of citizen science on maths. You know, let's have a problem and let's get everyone involved. Um, and there are some great citizen science projects where you know genuinely anybody can actually contribute um, to the research. So there's a, like a protein folding um, ex, a sort of game which anybody can play uh, and they've made discoveries thanks to the, to the popular, you know, the, the public getting involved. And, and there was another one uh, which we do in Oxford uh, called um, uh, uh, Zooniverse. Uh, um, it's uh, uh, looking at stars and classifying stars. Um, and, you know, we just don't have enough eyes to look at these stars, so we get the public. But the trouble with this maths one, it had such a high entry um, level that actually it just turned out to be professional mathematicians but that got involved. So it wasn't a genuine citizen science project. But it did at least um, uh, open up the kind of ethos of maths and saying, uh, you know, let's collaborate a bit more and share our failures uh, mm -hmm. more. Um, and actually, Timothy put on a problem that he said, I, I, I knew that I could probably solve this in five years, and they solved it collaboratively in three months. So, right. um, but I think you're absolutely right about philosophy. Um, and it's, in a way, um, I, I would say that, you know, the maths curriculum is far too technical, and it just does really boring stuff, and it bores the shit out of most kids. <laughs> um, and actually, if you put some bigger ideas in there, Call it philosophy, or call it just you know proper maths. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, one of the 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 last edge where I'm talking about Gödel, I also talk about the idea that infinity used to be something that by its nature was kind of something we could never know, but actually at the end of the 19th century came along this guy uh, George Cantor who said no, actually we can know infinity. We can articulate it. We can name it. We can find it. it's actually many things. There are many different sorts of infinity. Now the the ideas are not that difficult. I've done it with kids, and they get it. It's nothing technical, but it blows them away to, you know, to see that they have managed to create an infinity which is bigger than another infinity and what that means. And I think those deep philosophical ideas, we're too timid with our kids, um, and, and we're not brave enough. And I think you know, my, that my sec third book, The Number of Mysteries, in a way was my manifesto for all the big ideas that I think we could challenge kids with, which I think would actually... Then you get why you have to do all of this technical stuff because it will get you that much further. Great. I think that that's absolutely... We, I think we, we shortchange a lot of students yeah. and we don't challenge them enough. And we give them specific maths that, yes, they'll need to know for uh, X, Y, Z if they're moving on and, and things like I'm that. I'm not even not sure. You see, I think even that, the, the um, government makes a mistake. You know, when have anybody here used a sine or a cosine in their everyday life? Yet we think that, that there's somehow this feeling like, oh, no, you must know how to solve a, qu a quadratic equation. Mm. Why? Why? When, I've never used a quadratic equation to do anything. In, it's not a basic thing that every student needs to know. And if you actually free yourself up, okay, so why are we doing this? Mm. And actually, it's about ways of thinking. The, way, the point about solving a quadratic equation is, is not to work out where the ball's going to land so I can head it in the back of the net. Yeah, yeah. no, Wayne Rooney isn't doing a, solving a, a quadratic equation. But, but um, I, I think it's the idea that there are general methods which can solve yes. particular problems and the way of thinking several steps ahead. Mm -hmm. and that, but once you free yourself up from... Actually, they don't need to learn. OK, numeracy, yes. But these things... Well, they're just examples of things we could learn. But, OK, but why couldn't they do infinity and um, four-dimensional geometry, uh, which mm -hmm. involves no nothing difficult, actually. Um, and then I think you'd free the curriculum up from this dreadful feeling like, oh, it's all got to be useful, which it actually isn't. <laughs> oh, my God, if I really... Said... Oh, no, <laughs> I've opened up a can of worms there. We'll bring you back another day and we can re rewrite the syllabus. I'll take this question at the back here now. Um, I, I've always been interested in the, in the brain of a mathematician because I'm not a mathematician. I studied physics, but I shared lectures with pure mathematicians and my experience was uh, the lecturer would put up something on the board and the pure mathematicians would say, blindingly obvious. But to me, I couldn't see it at all. And I formed the idea that uh, the brain of a mathematician, a pure mathematician, is different. And I wonder how you feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, ours are much bigger. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I talk about that actually in the book because um, it's very. There's a kind of real difference, I think, between mathematics and doing the science because um, uh, 
science is trying to describe the, the, the universe around us. And if you come up with a, a wonderful model of the universe, but then the data doesn't uh, fit, then you have to throw that out. And it's actually worthless, almost, as a model. But for the mathematician, actually, we really um, thrive on different models. Um, and and uh, it doesn't really matter. So I, in some ways, physicists are, um, are trying to find sort of what, what's out there. But mathematicians are more interested in kind of the general structures. So, so they do the particular, and we do the general. And I think that is quite often, they're trying to work out a pathway through the universe and trying to describe it. We're interested in all the possible pathways. Um, so the other difference, I think, is the idea um, of proof. You see, I, I know that I can get, um, uh, with a proof, 100% certainty about the knowledge that I attain. So the things that the ancient Greeks proved 2,000 years ago are as true today as when they were proved, you know, two millennia ago. Now, that's... You can't say that about the sciences. There's very little science. It's a much more evolutionary process. You have a model, and science by its very nature, uh, you know, Karl Popper says uh, something is only really science if it's falsifiable. So it has to have the possibility to be proved wrong in a way to be good science. Um, um, so it, uh, it's an interesting sort of question. Do you ever know that you know anything? in science. Um, but in mathematics, I would say that you know um, uh, the things that you prove um, have a r robust nature about them. I think that's why I was very insecure as a spotty teenager, and I really needed something that I could hold on to and felt secure <laughs> about. And, um, and mathematics was a place where, where I felt, um, uh, no, this isn't going to change and do something weird next day. Um, uh, I don't know if people have seen read or uh, seen the play The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night Time. Um, it's actually, I, I worked with a theatre company uh, to, uh, uh, when they were creating that show because the guy there, a spurgic kid, autistic kid, um, who loves mathematics. Mm. Um, and actually the play and the book end with his mathematical solution for his A-level question. But I think it was a great choice because, you know, I often aspergic or autistic people really enjoy the certainty of the mathematical world, that they know that it's not going to, to change it. They can understand it. It has a logic. And I think that's why there is a real difference, I think, between a mathematician and a... I, I, I have a lot of respect for physicists, uh, biologists especially. Their, their world is so messy. I mean, uh, that, you know, trying to navigate that and make sense of it... Uh, uh, I, I tell you, um, Fermat's last theorem is simple compared to trying to understand a cat, for example. I mean, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, can you make oh. a mathematician? Oh, that's really okay. interesting. No, I, I think we're all made mathematicians. So I, I, I think that evolution has programmed us to be... I mean, because, as I said, pat, uh, mathematics is about pattern searching and about trying to take the particular and generalise it so that you can apply what you've learnt just now to a new situation where something has changed but you spot enough of commonality between that. That's a very mathematical trait, and I think anyone who did that survived in this world. Um, so I, I do think that we all have um, a, a sort of mathematical uh, way of approaching the world. And it's about bringing that out. And um, uh, often it, it's somehow... It's like kids who are naturally creative and then somehow we bash that out of them. Um, I think the same thing probably happens with mathematics. Um, I think we're all... Well, actually, Paul Edos used to say, um, this great Hungarian mathematician, that all children um, are born with a proof of the Riemann hypothesis in their heads. <laughs> the, uh, the unfortunate thing is that they lose it by the time they're able to articulate speech. And, um, uh, so, so I, but I, I sort of sign up to that. I think we're all mathematical at heart. I think it's a very relevant question, though, and I think it's something that we do have inbuilt in us. It's like, no, I wasn't born with that maths gene, so I'm out. I'm not going to play the game. Yeah. Those people were born with the maths gene, and they're going to be good at it. There's this thing, though, called dyscalculia, which I really yes. wish had not been discovered. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think it's important that it was, because I think there, is, there are there some are brains who, who you know, find it very difficult, like mm -hmm. uh, dyslexia, number, find it very difficult to sort of uh, compute things. Mm -hmm. That said, there's a lot of mathematics that doesn't require the skills that you know, a dyscalculic person might have. So I don't think that they're played out of the mathematical game. But the trouble is that this now, so, so many people... You know, declared to me, oh, of course, I'm dyscalculic. Uh, and I think it's just too easy for people to, to use that as their way of saying, you know, why, why they don't like maths or why mm -hmm. they can't do maths. And, and I, f I think it does disservice to those who genuinely have Perfect. dyscalculia. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I am conscious of time, and I know we've got a question here, and I think we've got another question, and two questions here. Um, and anybody else? 
Uh, okay, so I, I will go maybe. Uh, what I might do is, if, if that's okay, because we do only have 10 minutes left, I might take um, two questions that you might um, yeah, that answer. Yeah, And then two, and, and th that's Then I can ignore well. the really difficult one. Okay, <laughs> So well, if you'd like to go first, well, and we'll I've get the microphone down here. Yeah, since you put the picture up of Wittgenstein, the Beatle, I've been trying to figure out what the connection was. <laughs> so I was hoping you might be explaining that very quickly in the context, yeah. I presume it was the context of, of the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. And um, obviously there's people like David Chalmers and so on and say they can't be solved. Yeah. But sort of the scientists, the neuroscientists would say we just need to get enough evidence in, we get enough brain scans to run and then we will answer it. So I'm yeah. curious why you included it in the category of what we cannot know. Is it not just a matter of we'll know in a matter of time. Yeah, uh, so um, it's very... The hard problem of consciousness is about um, how can I know that you're having any conscious experience at all? Externally, you might be um, doing everything that a conscious being would be doing, but maybe you're all zombies. Uh, some of you look quite tired on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon, but you know, how do I know? Uh, I can never... So we can scan a brain now, and so I can see a lot of activity um, that's happening inside the brain, but uh, you know, still uh, being able to articulate whether... Um, will be able to identify what consciousness is. The beetle, Wittgenstein said that basically uh, consciousness is uh, maybe a, a lot of these things actually came down to problems of language. Um, so he said consciousness is a bit like um, a box. We each have a box inside our heads and we all call the thing inside the box a beetle. But unfortunately I can never look inside your box to see whether your beetle is the same as my beetle. Um, so we all call it beetle. Um, but how, how can I ever know that what it feels like to be you is anything like what it feels like to be me. I can scan you and I can see that the activity might be exactly the same, but that still doesn't answer. And this is what you know, the philosophers are, who raise the heart problem of consciousness will say, that still doesn't tell me um, that what you're experiencing, what it feels like to be you, is the same as anything like what it feels like to be me. Certainly the, the out, outward behavior is the same. But in, in that chapter, I, uh, uh, there's a really interesting uh, story of uh, a sort of new mathematical formula for consciousness, which um, actually articulates that, well, what it might feel like to be a network, um, which is really fascinating. So I, I think that that one is... Uh, I put it in there as one we cannot know because a lot of people say the hard problem of consciousness, by its very nature, is something we can never answer. But um, I think that it potentially is something that we will make progress on. Either um, uh, we will, uh, you know, we had this problem, what, what, is, it, what is life? And uh, eventually we thought, we thought there was some elan vital, something which gave you life. But actually we realized that there are just conditions for life and that's what we are. So we realized this kind of problem went away almost. Um, so, you know, some philosophers will say that actually the problem of consciousness isn't a real problem at all. Um, but Wittgenstein, uh, I think, example of the box of the beetle is quite a good one. And I know my wife is synesthetic, for example, so mm. she has a sense of colour when she sees number and uh, letters. Now, she's clearly having a different um, conscious experience to me. I will never have that. I don't know what it feels like. She says she's seeing colour, but I, I don't know what that means, really. It's quite hard <laughs> to get inside that head. Um, so so I, that was a really fascinating edge for me to go out on. Thank you. So we'll take these two questions at the same time. If you'd like to go first. Hi. Hello. Um, I was just wondering, because you were talking about theorems a lot during your presentation and the talking, whatever, did you make up your own theory along the way? Or if you didn't, is there one that you, is there like a particular one that you really want to solve? Okay. okay perfect. Good. Yeah. And then we'll t go to the edge of this um, seat as well. Yeah. Oh, he's getting two questions. Yeah. That's right. Well, he did Three. put his hand up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in a society that rewards success, how can we afford to keep failing? Great. Oh, Two great question. questions. Yeah, so yeah. The, the, the theorem, yeah. is there one that you haven't proved yet? And then is there a way of changing what society thinks is success? Um, so, yes, I mean, that's kind of... Um, I've done a lot of failing, but I have had successes. Uh, and somehow that's uh, really important. It's, and it's a bit like a drug, um, that when you have those flashes of understanding, um, it's extraordinary. And, and so um, uh, I have several discoveries I've made. One, I think, which I talk about, in, actually, the second book is um, about symmetry, which is my area of research. It's called Finding Moonshine. And I actually, in that second book, I actually talk about what it's like to be a mathematician. So it's got a very sort of general story of symmetry and also a very particular story of what I do in my daily life. Um, and it talks about this discovery that I made of these new symmetrical objects, um, which nobody had ever seen before. And they have this weird connection with a completely different area of mathematics um, called elliptic curves. Um, and for me, it was a, I, I still remember that moment when I was kind of flash of something and I wrote this thing down 
And my, my palette of choice is a yellow legal notepads. It's, uh, somehow I'm a little bit aspergic about yellow. Um, and, and it seems to be the right uh, sort of uh, thing to write on. And I, I still have the pad where I wrote this down. And um, so that's, they're now called the DeSotoy symmetry groups. So that's quite. And I think, you know, I said that science, you know, uh, somebody might have a species named after them, but that species might become extinct or a star or a planet. So, well, they're going to just disappear. But that mathematics is going to last forever. I mean, I have the best <laughs> chance of a bit of immortality, I think. So, um, uh, and and I, I think you're absolutely right. So there is too much emphasis on um, uh, success. And I think it's important. Um, uh, there was a wonderful uh, a story of a guy in America who published his CV of all his failures. And it was really insightful and very brave um, of him. And he wrote down all the jobs that he'd applied for that he hadn't got. And, mm -hmm. um, and he was an academic. Uh, um, and, and I think that uh, um, it's very important to create an environment where, where you can fail. Because um, I think it's only by, uh, by taking risks that we're able to, uh, to make progress. Um, and I think you know, we live in a terrible age where government wants us to um, articulate you know, what we're going to be proving in the next five years, mm. um, all of this impact we have to prove. And, and actually, it's only by taking risks, trying something crazy. Um, uh, and actually, if you look at all the amazing technology that we've created and the things which uh, you know, have had an impact on life, they've never come from uh, some, somebody who's channeling success or somebody who's channeling um, wanting to make an impact. It's somebody who's just interested in exploring knowledge for its own sake. Um, and I think that that isn't being celebrated enough, that it's, there's too much kind of uh, emphasis on, uh, on impact and utility and not just celebrating the explorations of, of you know, trying to solve great unsolved problems just for the heck of it. Thank you. Now, uh, we are going to be running short in time, so I'm sorry, I'm gonna, not going to get to your second question. Maybe you'll get to ask Marcus, but I'll go for the, the last question here of the session now. Etymologically, uh, the word science is rooted in Latin, in scio, uh, I know, so knowledge. Would you agree with Bruno Latour, the French philosopher, that science is dead and long live research? Well, I think that's really interesting because I think, as I said, the, you know, the things I don't know are, are the lifeblood of science. I mean, science would ossify if we knew it all. You know, I sort of don't want to know it all. So the unknowables are, are really important. But, but although I say that, you know, the, the exploration in this book was, okay, but the things that we could never know, they're my nemesis. They're what I really don't want. I don't want there to be things that, that I'll never be able to answer, even though I, you know, uh, the Gödel's theorem is an interesting example. Maybe the thing that I'm working on trying to prove now, I'm still trying to prove something, a conjecture, maybe it's something which doesn't have a proof within the system I'm working on. And that's, that is quite uh, frightening, but um, uh, but the interesting thing I think is you know science is about uh, uh, you know comes from this idea to know, but um, I, I think there's a really deep philosophical questions about truly can we be say that we know anything? Perhaps this whole thing is a simulation, <laughs> and uh, you know they isn't real at all. But um, uh, but so so some of that is the explorations of just theory of knowledge. What what can we know? Are we as Kant said, we can only know things through our senses. What if there are things out there that our senses can't detect? How could we ever know that? Um, um, so it's, this was a really challenging but really exciting book to write because it sort of pushed me out into lots of different areas of science. And um, uh, uh, yeah, in a way, this book is quite a good excuse to to tell you what we do know. So it's sort of, um, uh, after you've read the book, hopefully you'll go away with a good lay of, you know, what the, the lay of the land is now, what we do know. Um, but what's out there still for all kind of the young people here to mm. tell, us, tell us about. Great. I think that's a, that's a perfect place um, to finish. Uh, I'd like to thank all of you for your questions because it does yeah. make the conversation so much more enjoyable when we have all of these different insights and ideas coming, coming out. Um, also, thank you to the volunteers for having the microphones around uh, from the International uh, Literature Festival. And a sincere thanks for a wonderful presentation, for giving us his time and for being so thoughtful and insightful and inspiring um, in all of the answers that he, or, or all of the discussions that we've had today. So please give your round of applause and appreciation for Thank Professor. You. Thank you. Thank you to you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah.